Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, May 19th, we are studying Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. In today's text, Jesus gives the last of the seven letters that John is to write to congregations in Asia Minor. This letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Laodicea. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Well, thank you for having me on. It's always a privilege. As we get started today, Pastor Linnell, talk to us a little bit about the way we should approach the book of Revelation. How do we approach it as Christians? Why is it a useful and helpful book for us? You know, it, it, I'm, I'm so excited that we're, we're going to go through uh, the book of Revelation. I think that it's a, a wonderfully uh, comforting and encouraging book, but often misunderstood. You know, and and it's also just a lot of fun, a lot of fun to read. But you you have to have a lot of prerequisite knowledge in order to be able to get through it in any sort of way that is um, productive and meaningful. And goodness, the day of all days, you know, I uh, earlier today, I ended up at the at the oral surgeon. It was it was a bit unexpected. I had a, a dental implant that fell out, oh. and so I spent an hour this morning with a dental surgeon packing packing cadaver bone into a hole into my jaw. The lidocaine's wearing off. The pain pills are kicking in. We're reading the apocalypse of John. This is exciting. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> so the thing about Revelation, right, is that um, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And there's two things when you see the revelation of Jesus. It is the revelation that belongs to Jesus, and the revelation is also about Jesus. But at no point in time did they say that the revelation is about um, the end times as it is understood in popular culture. It absolutely is about the end times, but but not not the way that it's been depicted in popular media and in, in evangelical and uh, American Christian circles. Hmm. When we are reading through the book of, of uh, Revelation, you really have to have a decent handle on everything that's come before. Because one of the things that I think people forget is that it's not actually telling you anything new. And if you think it's telling you something that's new, but it's telling you these new things in a way that is figurative and, and with fantastic imagery, where are you going to go to figure out what those things mean. Well, you're going to go anywhere else other than Scripture. And that's a problem, because Scripture is always the, the one that should interpret Scripture. Now, Revelation is, again, a wonderfully comforting, encouraging book. I really do love it, but it's in the back for a reason. 
it's in the back because you have to have a handle on everything else before you get there. And so when you finally get to this book of Revelation, you also have to understand who's writing it and when and where and who's he writing it to. And so John, the, the last living apostle, is writing this letter to encourage really all Christians in, in the time that is coming when the apostles are no more, but the church will endure. And that's, that's really the, I think, the, the message of all of this is that last statement, the church will endure. Because Jesus will endure, and he has already won the victory. So as he's writing these letters, as he's writing all of this stuff, you have to understand everything he says from, from the context that Christ has already won. And there are things that are yet to come. That's, that's certainly true. But our faith, our faith holds that there are things yet to come, but its foundation is in the things that God has already done. And so then the book of Revelation also finds its foundation in the things that Christ has already done. As we start taking a look at, you know, well, there's seven seals and seven bowls and seven trumpets, you know, and, and the like, we could, we could get into, and I, I hope you have the idea that these are not um, uh, successive sort of things, but they're, they're repetitive, right? Different perspectives on things that have already happened or, or things that have already been said. And these new and added perspectives help us because we ourselves have a lot of different contexts in which we live or different sorts of things, but, but Jesus is always the same. And so the message of Revelation is always the same. And, and again, to make it very simple, the message of, of the book of Revelation is uh, Jesus wins. And indeed, he has already won. And there will be many trials and many tribulations and many all sorts of other things that come our way. But Jesus wins. And indeed, he has already won. If you see this book as only applying to, you know, some premillennial dispensation, which, by the way, we don't teach or confess, well, then this book is only relevant to you if you live in those times. And so... For centuries, people have been reading this book and just wasting their time. But if you believe, as I do, and I, I think as we confess as a, as a body, that this book is written to all Christians in the end times, that is the time after Christ's ascension, perhaps even after the death of the apostles, until Christ's return, then it has a message that endures for all of us, a comfort that endures for all of us, and indeed, that is, I think, much, much more the way that we should be going with this. Otherwise, again, maybe we're wasting our time, maybe we're not. But if Christ is for all, for all time, then this book is also for us. It's message of message of encouragement and it's message of victory through Jesus Christ. Now, the, the book starts with the vision that John receives of the risen, exalted Christ in chapter 1, and then John is given these letters to write to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We find ourselves at the seventh letter today. Any context from the letters, from that initial vision of Jesus that we should keep in mind as we read this letter to the church in Laodicea? Well, he writes letters, but really they're they're more like notes. You could probably fit them on a postcard. Um <laughs> But I think that that's also kind of important, right? 
because the the deal is is that these these letters and the things that are in them are are built on an assumed knowledge that that these churches have and so um when we're when we're reading these letters you know we'll get into this as we're we're taking a look at sort of the specific wordage remember these letters aren't from john right these letters are from jesus right and and they are um they are god uh calling his his people to repentance and encouraging them in his faithfulness towards them and so you know there's there's seven churches and you know and again i don't know how much you've you've done with this already but the 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 numerology of things really matters in revelation Mm -hmm. so when you see for example um the number three you really should be thinking of the trinity or or you know depending on the context perhaps christ's three-day rest in the tomb um when you see the number four you're really referring to sort of a, a a human sort of earthly thing when you when you see the number seven it means those things which belong to god when you see the number 10 we're talking about sort of a, a completeness right so that the 10 words of the 10 commandments this is this is a complete sort of set when you when you see the number 12 you're you this is the number of god's people and the way that these numbers interact with each other so for example later on and you know again you'll get to this if you have 12 times 12 well that's 144 and what you're doing when you multiply those numbers together is you're intensifying their meaning and in some cases occasionally adding a little bit of context depending on your historical knowledge of what's previously gone on so if you have 12 in the old testament right 12 tribes and 12 in the new testament right you have 12 apostles you know you're you're adding the context of both god's old and new people you multiply this 12 by 12 and you intensify the meaning. Now you can combine that. You can multiply that by 10. And so this means all of God's people. And when you continue to multiply that, you intensify that meaning as well. And so you would say, well, 10 times 10 times 10, right? Because mm-hmm. there's three. So three tens. And then, you know, you've, you've got a thousand times 144. And all of a sudden you have 144,000 and this number then takes on an incredibly an incredibly important meaning well you do this all the time and throughout revelation in a number of different places and with a number of different things right now we have seven churches well why did he write to seven churches well because these are these churches belong to god right and so you know he he could have maybe chosen 10 churches and then it would have been all of the churches or maybe 12 churches, the churches of God's people, whatever. But really what he wants to say here, as he's writing to these seven churches, is that these churches belong to God. And not only do the churches belong to God, but the, the angels or bishops or however you want to you know, interpret that, the people that are in them, these belong to God. And not just because all things belong to God, but the church, the church belongs to God. And this this in itself, just within the, the structure of how these things are, are organized, provides an incredible comfort and encouragement to us. Because sometimes Jesus is not terribly pleased in these letters, but you still belong to him. And that's, that's important. He does not cast you off. He does not deny you. He doesn't say, you know, that um, 
that he's he's done with you. Within the structure of these things, these churches belong to him, and thus he cares for them. And that's why he's writing the letters, regardless of any other sort of law or or chastisement that comes. You belong to him. He cares for you, and that's why he's writing this letter. Let's go ahead and read this letter then. This, again, is the seventh of the letters that Jesus sends to his churches, beginning at Revelation 3.14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's our text for today. That's Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. So Pastor Linnell, at the beginning of the letter, we hear things that are very similar to previous letters. First, we hear to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? We've talked about the angel in each case. I think most most of the guests have, have tended to think that the angel is probably the pastor, the messenger to the church. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Um, I, I think that that's a pretty safe sort of bet, a pretty safe way to go. Um, I think that if you're if you're seeing this or you believe that this is within a context that everything that John writes is under scrutiny, then you know he has to write in in a you know a code or something. I think that fits in with that. Um, otherwise, if um, if John is um, um, you know receiving this in terms of of a vision, you know, then why wouldn't it be presented in that sort of way? Um, this also, by the way. Um, could very well be a reference to uh, to the book of Daniel. In the, the prophetic section of the book of Daniel, there's there's an an angel that is um, you know in charge of um, and I can't remember which place it was Persia or you know one of these kings. And so there's these these angels that are in charge of these kingdoms, or maybe they're fallen angels, and so they they contest and they battle with one another. And then you say, well, well that. That's too fantastical to be true. That has to represent something. I, I don't know if we have to choose. Um, I think we can do both. Um, angels are, uh, you know, they obviously, you know, exist. Uh, God commands his angels concerning us. Um, I think that the only time that we fall into a real, uh, a real problem is when we start focusing too much on the angel and not on the one who sent them. And so if, you know, if you you know, believe that the the Lord has a guardian angel watching over you, um, well and good. I'm fine with that. But if you start trying to communicate with your guardian angel rather than the one who commands him, you're really missing the boat. So again, yeah, 
um, you know, as a, as a, a person who likes tangible stuff, I, I prefer that, you know, the angel is the, the bishop or the pastor or whatever. But if somebody holds that these are actual angels that, that watch over these churches or something, then that's fine too. Just don't get into, you know, don't, don't get into some weird kind of mysticism where you're going to you know, find out the name of the angel and its nature and then communicate with it or what you're, this is about Jesus, not about angels. Mm. Yeah, that, so. that's right. That's right. So Jesus then identifies himself to the church in Laodicea as the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Talk about the way that ident- that Jesus identifies himself here. So it's it's really interesting the way that all of these these open are different images, different themes in which Jesus identifies himself, uh, and it has to do with. Um, you know, particular, let's say, aspects to his, I don't want to say aspects to his nature, but functions that he might perform, mm. right? I don't, I don't want to get into the difference between sort of like an ontological and an economical description of, you know, the, the particular persons of the Trinity. But um, yeah, I think Jesus is is describing a, a particular uh, action or function or, you know, work that he does primarily. And so here when we talk about you know, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. And so Amen, you know, or, or you know, verily, this is typically a word that's associated with, with truth. Um, and so we would respond with Amen unless they were responding with, yes, this is true. This is a, you know, a word of assent. But it's also sort of the word that, that we conclude with, right? And so this is the last of the letters, and this is sort of this conclusion. But But it also... I think adds a wonderful context to why and what it means when we end our prayers with amen. Because if we don't, does God still hear us? I mean, sure, right? It's not like hitting send on the email. And then if you don't, God's, you know, it just gets stuck in your, your drafts box. And the Lord hears you. But when we, when we conclude with amen, when you are in church and you're responding with amen in the liturgy, not only is this a, a confession, not only are you, you know, responding with true and participating, but at least here, according to, to Revelation, this is, this is a manner in which we are invoking um, Christ himself. Mm-hmm. And it's not exactly the same as invoking the name of Jesus or the name of the Trinity. Those, those are, are special and important, you know, um, for, for lots of reasons that cannot um, be either discounted or equivocated with what's going on here. But it's important to remember that this is here and that this is not an accident. And so as we are, as we are responding there in church, you know, we are invoking at the very least, we are uh, invoking um, the, the, the memory or the, the mindset of speaking in Christ with these things and faithful, faithful and true witness, right? So, um, Christ bears witness about the Father, and um, and the Holy Spirit bears witness about the Father. The Father and the Spirit bear witness about Christ, and the Father and Christ both send and thus, in a sense, bear witness to the Spirit. Right? We must have two or three witnesses. Certainly, they could bear witness to themselves, and they would not be lying. They would still be true, and yet they choose not to because that's how relationships work. And so he is the faithful and true witness. He is the one that reveals to us the Father, the Father's goodness and grace, the Father's law as it is fulfilled in him. 
and the Father's purpose for all things. He is the ruler of God's creation. The uh, God, the Father, is the, the source from which um, creation comes. Christ is the one who speaks then, uh, and it is through Christ who is the word into which uh, all things come into being. And so he is the ruler of all creation, of all of God's creation. And this isn't a conflict, even, right? Jesus is God, but he's still the ruler of God's creation. Because not only does he sit on the throne, but he rules all things according to his word. His word is what calls them into being and doesn't just call them into being and then let them go. But he must continue to speak, continue to will for them to exist. And if any point in time the Lord ceases to will something, his word ceases to support its existence, it simply evaporates, right? Mm. And I don't, I don't mean evaporate like that's, you know, but it's just a, a pretty word. But, but yeah, they cease to exist. So, you know, the devil and the Lord are not fighting as if the devil has a chance, right? Yeah. If at any point in time the Lord wishes for the devil to cease to exist, he simply will, you know? And this is, again, I think one of the things, there's a lot of, you know, picture language and stuff in Revelation and other places where people are like, wow, God and the devil, they're, they're having a battle and, you know, and you got to choose sides. no. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of how that dynamic works. Mm. Uh, the devil isn't terribly fond of God at this point, but the devil doesn't really hate God. That's not how that started. The devil hates you. And so the battle then is between really you and the evil one, and it's God who chooses sides. And of course, he's chosen your side, which makes him and and then the, the devil sort of enemies because the devil originally attacks you. And this is, again, sort of the, the I think, the, the misunderstanding of, of how that dynamic works and then what that means for this book of Revelation. But, you know, in, when you take a look at, at Jesus and the devil and, there's in, and their interactions in the Bible, what, what exactly is the devil upset about? He's not upset that God is being God. He's upset that God is being man. And the thing that the devil never calls God, uh, the thing that the devil never calls Jesus, is Jesus. He's more than, if you are the son of God, you know, if you are these things. But he, but his issue is, is that being a man, walking around, being hungry, enduring the things that humans have to endure, this is beneath you. Just be God. Just turn the stones to bread. Just do the miracles. Just be God and stop putting yourself in the position, stop taking the side of these miserable, unworthy human beings. And by the way, you see this later on when you get the imagery of the beast and the woman and the thing, because this incarnation of Christ is so pivotal. And it's really the thing that I think infuriates the devil more than anything else, right? Because in the beginning, um, God chose us to have his image and likeness, chose us to be his sons, his representatives in, in creation. And we were not worthy, according to the devil. And you know what? He might have even have been right. But the thing is, is that God loves us and God's love isn't dependent upon our worthiness, but upon his goodness. And so the devil then comes and says, I'll show you, Lord, I'll show you because you're making a mistake. And of course, the devil is just falling apart at this point. But as upset as that makes him, 
it's that pronouncement there in the beginning that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will crush your head and you will but bruise his heel. And so, right, this this incarnation is really where, where the devil is just um, completely confounded. But when you come here to, to the text, right, these words are faithful, or excuse me, these are the words of the Amen, we're talking about Jesus, faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. And so this, this is, again, it's an evocation of, of Jesus, who is the truth, who is the witness, who, from the very beginning, the word of God made flesh, and this is, this is Christ. So Christ speaks to the church in Laodicea as the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And he says, would you would that you were one of those, but instead you're lukewarm. You're neither one, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. We've got about just, just two minutes here before the break, Pastor Linnell. Help us to get started. I think this is one of the the better known parts of the letters, this matter of lukewarm, get us started on this conversation and we'll pick up more on the other side. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I've, I've said before is that um, uh, hatred is not the opposite of love. Indifference is um, because you can, you can be angry. You can be upset. You can, you can hate someone. You can be cold towards someone because you have passionate feelings towards them. And maybe there is something in the relationship, there is something that there's an inconsistency, there's, there's, there's something that you can't resolve, and then this anger is a secondary emotion, right? But it, it comes from uh, longing or, or pain or fear, and it's, it's too hard to deal with those emotions, and so you have something else. And then you can have somebody who is you know, loving and passionate, and whichever one right, you wanna say this, this hot or cold, these are these these strong relationship connections which are seen in in emotions and i'm not trying to say that our relationship with god is an emotional based one but that's that's the way that it's presented here and so you either have this strong relationship connection on either side or you just don't care and the the issue is is that i can talk with somebody who is passionately upset i can talk with somebody who is passionately for and, and you know and and loves the lord but somebody who doesn't care you can't talk with them because they don't care and so this is that this is that lukewarm right you're neither hot you're neither cold you you desire not to engage at all and it would be better it would be better if you had not heard the lord's word yet and then i could come to you rather than having you hear it having you know it and then having you slip into, I don't care about it. Because now what am I supposed to say to you? You've already heard all the things. And so certainly the Lord thinks that there is something to say to them. Otherwise, you wouldn't be writing this letter. It's not like they're hopeless. But their situation is dire. Mm. And it's because they've fallen into ambivalence. Mm. Let's, let's talk more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Linnell this morning about Revelation chapter 3. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Hi there, Pastor Timothy Apple here. I wanted to take a moment during the break to thank you for listening to Sharper Iron. Whether you listen every weekday morning at 8 a.m. or on demand at kfuo.org or through your favorite podcast platform, thanks for studying the scriptures with us. I especially want to thank the students at Faith Lutheran High School in Central Texas in Pastor Beck's New Testament class. I pray that this series on the book of Revelation has been helpful to you as you've been studying that book in class. And I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that through faith in Christ, you are conquerors. Through faith in Christ, you are conquerors. Remember that. Again, thanks for listening. Back to the show. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, May 19th. We're studying Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22 with Pastor Sean Linnell. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we were talking about the very dire situation, as you said, in the church in Laodicea. They are neither hot nor cold. They are lukewarm. Jesus says he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Keep keep talking about what you were saying before we left off the break. Well, we're, we're really talking about a relationship, you know, and I, I think sometimes because we we have such wonderful doctrine, and I think that we, especially for us who, you know, are theologically or academically minded, we, we're very good at talking about the things, but, you know, we can't forget that this is a relationship. And in, in any relationship, you know, if you have um, a, a really strong and passionate, loving, affectionate, caring um, relationship towards one another, uh, this is very good. Um, but also if if people are upset just because your your spouse or your friend or your sibling or whatever your parent is upset with you, that doesn't mean that that the relationship is gone. It means that that they expect it to be there and there may be something wrong with it, but they want it to be good. Otherwise they wouldn't be upset. And so it's not it's not when my wife is happy and loving that I'm worried. It's not even really when my wife is upset that I'm worried. It's when I ask her how she is and she says, fine. And that's, that's when you know that things are not fine. <laughs> because, you know, that's sort of an ambivalent, I don't want to talk about it. I'm, you know, I'm whatever. And in truth, um, the, the worst part would be not if she says I'm fine, but if she was to say something like, it doesn't matter, I'm over it. Well, well I mean, I hope that's not true. Um, because if, if you're over it, does that mean you're over me? You're over us. You're over whatever. By the way, uh, I, I love my wife. We're fine. Uh, <laughs> but in, in this relationship with God, and this is what we're talking about, is you have, you have Christians that are... Um, Oh, I hate this phrase. They're just on fire for the Lord, right? And this is this is a good thing. They're passionate for Jesus. They, and that doesn't mean that, you know, every day is just this emotional mountaintop 
but they really do love the Lord. And then you have people that that are upset because they they believed certain things, they expected certain things, and they didn't get them. And maybe the issue isn't that they didn't get them from the Lord. Maybe they didn't get them from the, the church or the congregation or the pastor or the you know, the people in their lives they expect that from. Sometimes people need compassion and they receive law. And then, you know, they, they don't, you know, they don't trust, but they're very upset and they're hurt, but they want something. But again, there are a number of people that um, they just don't care. They're really not involved at all um, in any sort of uh, honest kind of way. They, there are people that they either they go to church or they, you know, they're in their relationship with God, whatever they call themselves. And they're, they're not really, they're not really, um, really are wanting to have the conversation. They don't want to grow. They don't want to examine themselves. They're perfectly happy where they're at. And then, and then that's just sort of that. Um, and it's, it's so much more than going through the motions. You know, it's, it's really just sort of a heart that is turned off, but you know, we're, once an object is in motion, we're just going to, we're just going to kind of do that. And the thing about Laodicea, the reason that they're in this boat, um, is because of how much success that they've seen. And so rather than responding to that success, rather than responding to the, the gifts and blessings in a, in a first article temporal sense with thanksgiving towards the Lord or a passion for helping out others, they've really just fallen into, yep, yep, going to church, but everything's fine. You know, pastor's going to get up there and he's going to say that we're bad. And, and then we're going to be like, yeah, we're real bad. And then we're going to go up and have the thing. And then we're going to go home and completely forget about him. And, um, yep, that's it. Sort of doing our part. And, um, I'm going to be honest. Um, I see that a lot, you know, nowadays. So it's not just a message for the church in Laodicea. It's a message for us right now. You know, the church in Laodicea, um, this is a, a church that was mentioned in Colossians 4, verse 16. Um, this is a, a church that's on sort of the west end of what is now the, the country of Turkey and sort of Asia Minor. Uh, this is a city that was on the, the river Lycus. Um, and it's it's honestly a pretty, pretty famous city. And in, in around 361, there was a council that was held there to establish sort of this New Testament canon which ironically only had 26 books in it and omitted this letter. And I just find that to be hilarious. But Laodicea was a, a place of finance. It was a place of banking. In fact, in, in 60 AD, the city had this great earthquake and there was just a tremendous amount of, of damage. And the Roman Empire, so Rome uh, offered them help to rebuild it. And they were like, no, nah, we're fine. And they just rebuilt everything themselves. So they were, they were a pretty wealthy, pretty, pretty well-to-do kind of place. And that's what it says is, you know, as we continue, it says, you say, I am rich. And this is starting at verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. And this is sort of the nature of their lukewarmness, right? And this harkens to Jesus's parable of the rich man um, who, you know, knocks down his bonds and builds bigger ones. And then he says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. Well, this is exactly what they're doing. Um, they're falling into the the wealth of and the 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 first article blessings and gifts the the worldly sort of things that make life comfortable, and then they're they are ignoring not only the the spiritual concerns within their own lives, but arguably then the physical concerns of other people because you know they're just sort of fine. 
And so that's that's where they're they're at. You you can't serve both God and, and mammon. But they're not mad at God. You know, I'm sure that if you were to have a casual conversation with any one of them, they'd seem like, you know, perfectly reasonable kind of, you know, American Christians. Yep, yep, go to church, love Jesus. Yep, that's great. But they don't, right? Not really sort of in their life. And if you try to have a meaningful conversation with them about anything, they're not really into it because they don't want to be invested. And so Jesus responds to them and he says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, right? He's revealing to them and calling to them and says, just because your life looks nice, that doesn't mean that your life is actually nice. You can't judge by what's on the outside. Do you not remember how Jesus called all of those guys whitewashed tombs? And that's exactly what you are. You know, you, you are still this pitiful, poor, blind, wretched, and naked person. I remember um, I remember watching this TV preacher a while back. I think her name was Joyce, Joyce Myers or something. Mm. And uh, she got up there and she said, you know, we, I grew up in the church. We used to get up every Sunday and say, you know, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Well, I ain't, I ain't poor. I ain't miserable. And I can't remember. She said, I'm not a sinner, but it seemed to be the direction she was going. You could probably find the clip. Well, that's exactly what they're talking about, or that's what the Lord is talking about here. You know, and one of the things is sometimes success is indeed God's judgment against us. I mean, the very first part of Romans is all about that, right? They they want to do the things, and at some point the Lord says, I gave them over unto their unnatural lusts and desires, because that's the direction they wanted to go. And sort of the same sort of thing, right? You know, you talk about Pharaoh in the Old Testament, and it isn't about till halfway through that, you know, God starts to harden Pharaoh's heart. And you say that, you know, he wasn't forcing him to do something against his will. He just removed, in a sense, that that opportunity for grace. But Pharaoh started off where he wanted to be. The Lord just basically said, all right, thy will be done. And so in the same sort of way, the Lord, right, when it says, um, um, because you were lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am, a, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. He hasn't done that yet. He hasn't spit them out or vomited them out or however graphic you want that to be. This is a warning. It's a call to repentance for them. And he says to them, listen, if, if you don't want to have anything to do with me, like at some point, at some point, thy will be done. But they're not there yet. And he's calling to them and he's saying, listen, you, you really don't understand how wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked you are. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white and, uh, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see, right? That the true riches, the, the, true, the, true, um, the, the true good things that moth and rust don't destroy are not found in the wealth of this world. It's not found in your two-car garage and, you know, taking your kids to softball and being able to, you know, have food from HelloFresh. Not that any of those things are bad. If you do them, good for you. But don't rely on those things and think, oh, I must be good with the Lord for look at the benefits he has allowed me to have. You know, that's that's not the measure by which you understand your relationship with the Lord is in a good spot. It's in the, the word and sacrament that comes from his altar and that comes from 
from his servants, you know, the servants to whom he's writing this letter. So that takes us, what, through verse 18. And then in verse 19, Jesus, I think, gives a quite a quite a glimpse into why he writes the letter, why he speaks the way that he does, which has been fairly direct, if I can say it that way. Verse 19 says, Jesus, Jesus speaks, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So I think the the purpose statement, Jesus, or the the reasoning, the love that he has in his reproving and disciplining, I think is an important point for us to, to bring out here. I, I agree. You know, and again, he says, you know, I, I have, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, but he hasn't done it yet. Yeah. You know, it, those whom I, I love, I rebuke and I, and I discipline. And, and this is, this is as a, as a loving father does, you know, as a loving parent does. If you never rebuke your kids, if you never correct them, if you never teach them the right way to go, then that's not love. You're not there to be their buddy. You can be their buddy later when they're 40. But right now, that's not your job. And so in the same way, you know, the Lord, he rebukes and chastens those whom he loveth. And so here he's calling them to repentance and being held accountable, being called to repentance. That's that's never fun. But the alternative is to just be done with you, yeah. right? And so if, if I am in a relationship with somebody, regardless whether that's, you know, what type of relationship that is, and I have a problem with you, I go to you and I talk to you about that problem because I value you and I value that relationship. That may or may not be a pleasant conversation because obviously there's conflict there. But if I didn't value you, if I didn't love you, if I didn't value the relationship, I'd just ghost you right? Or, you know, in my sinful nature or whatever, I'd, you know, be passive aggressive or take vengeance upon you. I'm not, you know, but those, those would be the things. And so when the Lord rebukes us, when he disciplines us, this is a good and loving thing. It's a really hard thing to accept because how does the Lord do that? Well, certainly he, he might do it sort of directly. The Lord can do whatever he wants, but most often the, the, the primary means by which the Lord does that is through the people that he puts in our lives and in a public uh, office through the office of holy ministry. But I mean, let's be honest with each other. If, if the pastor comes and, and, you know, gives you what for, uh, are you going to get defensive or are you going to listen to him? Now, nah, most people are probably going to get defensive, right? And there's tact and stuff involved with that. Sure, I, I agree, right? You know, that can be done in a better way than others. But when the pastor comes and tells you you've been screwing up, like, that's not because the pastor's arrogant. Well, at least not necessarily, right? right. Um, it's because he loves you. And it's, you know, it's not because the pastor's perfect. It's because Jesus told him to go and do that. John's not perfect. John isn't without sin, and yet the Lord is the one that told him to write these letters. And to write these letters to whom? Well, to the angels of the churches. So, would you rather have a big shiny angel appear in your room and, you know, and uh, and scare the pants off you? Or would you rather your pastor come and talk to you in what is hopefully a, a fairly constructive way and try to show you the truth of God's Word? So, that's how the Lord does that. He rebukes and he disciplines those whom he loves. And that rebuke and that discipline is not there to shame you. It's not there to hurt you. It's there to call you back unto him because you're wandering. And that's what he says. He says, so be earnest, right? Be zealous and repent. Be zealous for who? For him, right? Just love me and come back. That's really all I want, yeah. right? 
Yeah. He says, here I am. He says, I'm right here. I ain't never left. I, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't abandon you. I could have. I had every reason to. But I didn't because I love you. Mm. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears the voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Right? And this is this is a passage that's been misused so much, but it really is such a beautiful passage that Jesus is there. He stands at the door. Not where is he? The door. He stands at the door to your heart, right? But he stands at the door and knocks. And 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 what does that mean when he stands at the door and knocks? Because you know, a lot of times people will read into this too much and they'll be like, Well, he's using this, he's using this. No, no, no. He explains it. He says, if anyone hears my voice, right? the word of God is that which calls us to repentance. The word of God that he sends through his servants, through perhaps our mothers and fathers and people that he puts in our lives, definitely through the office of holy ministry, through the word as we read it, through the devotions, right? He calls to us. And it's his word that does those things. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, don't put too much effort or don't put too much emphasis on the opening the door part. The opening the door part is what happens after you hear my voice. And hearing, hearing is what brings about faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It's not simply that you, you know, that you heard a noise. That's not what hearing means, especially for, you know, for Jews. If you hear God's word, it does something to you. The word of God doesn't come to you. It happens to you. And when you hear that word, right, truly hear that word, right, not just hear sounds, but when you hear and you listen and you understand this is this is synonymous with having faith, the creation of, of spiritual life in you, right? And so it is the hearing that causes this opening of the door. And he says, and I will come in and eat with him, right? It's not so much the, the if-then statement, right? He says, but, you know, when faith is there, when you hear my word, I will do this. This is a promise, not a conditional. He says, I will come in. And I will eat with him and he with me. And he's, again, this is a direct reference to the Lord's table, to the supper. And not just as a, as a, 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 a you know, again, a sacrament, as if the Lord wasn't there with them in the sacrament. No, of course he was, because that's what his word says. But he means this in, in not only a present sense, but in an eternal sense, right? He, he, will, he will welcome you into his heavenly kingdom, sit you at the feast of you know, the feast of victory, which has no end, the marriage feast, of the lamb of his kingdom, which has no end. And so this is what he promises. He, you know, he promises, look, you, you've done these things. You've been out here, you know, whenever, but all I want for you is, is for you to come back. And by the way, when he says, um, uh, I stand at the door and knock, he doesn't wait for you to come to him. He goes to you, right? Yeah. He, he, he doesn't, he doesn't say, come back to me. He says, I came to you and I'm standing at your door. Right. Yeah. And he's, and he's knocking at the thing. So the Lord seeks us out and this is such a wonderful comfort. Yeah, it, it really is a, a wonderful comfort that the Lord stands at the door and knocks. I think it's, it's in, I don't know that the, the stanza made it into the, into Lutheran service book, but in, in the hymn, the Advent hymn that Paul Gerhardt writes, "Oh Lord, how shall I meet you?" He's, I think it's in TLH. He's got a got a ver He has a verse in there that talks about that that Jesus is the one standing at the door, and he's there to to help you, to bid you weep no more. That's the he's he's standing at the door who who best can help and cheer you and bids you weep no more. That's how the the stanza goes there. And I mean, it is it's a beautiful image that 
Jesus gives to the church in Laodicea that Gerhardt picks up in that hymn. It's one that we should rightly cherish. Actually, I, I remember the in the, the church I served in Smithville, one of the stained glass windows actually pictured Jesus knocking at the door from this text. I also recall it would this verse had been given as a confirmation verse to, to someone that, that I did their funeral. And it was, I mean, just what a beautiful comfort that Jesus is there. Listen to his voice. And, and that is a, a beautiful thing, to listen to his voice, to hear his word, to be brought to repentance and faith by him. In verse 21, then, Jesus makes a promise to the one who conquers, and we've heard these in each of the letters as well. Here, the, the promise in verse 21 goes like this. Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Talk about the promise Jesus making is making there. So when he says to him who overcomes, you know, he's, <clears throat> he's not talking necessarily about, you know, something that, that you have to do, but he's talking about, you know, when you are, when you are with him. Because right, in, in Christ, we are more than conquerors, right? This is sort of the way that Paul talks in, in Romans 8. And so when, when he's talking about this, this overcoming, you know, will you overcome sin or you overcome death or you overcome these temptations, these, these are not things that you can do on your own. And that's really the whole point. It's been the whole point of everything that he's been saying is that when you're out on your own, thinking that you've got it, thinking that you can do these things, that's when you are most wretched, blind, poor, naked. But when you are with him, he has already overcome sin and death and temptation. And so being bound with Jesus. And so he says to him who overcomes, and really, again, the way that you overcome is just, it's just being with Jesus. And you don't even have to do anything except stop running away, right? I mean, he's going to chase you, but stop running and so right being with christ he says and what does that mean why why should i why should i want to do that why should i forsake all of these things right well, christ says because i have so much more to give you than anything they ever could he says i will give the right to sit with me on my throne and just as i overcame and sat down with my father on his throne and so I think that right here that the thing we need to get out of this is that you are you are being brought into this relationship. Right? You don't focus so much on thrones and crowns and power and authority as if, you know, we're going to rule over our own planet or something like, you know, the Mormons. No, this is about a relationship. Right? The Father and the Son have this relationship. They have it from eternity. And the Son does what the Father has has willed. And then the son returns to the father and the father gives to the son all glory for the son has glorified the father. And in this relationship, this is a wonderful loving relationship the way all things should be. You have been adopted by baptism into Christ and into this relationship. And you are sons. And if sons, you are heirs. And if heirs, heirs to what? Well, certainly, you know, the throne and, you know, and all of that, right? Heirs to life but heirs to the relationship. That's what that means, is there's a relationship there. And there are lots of tangible effects to that relationship, right? Life and salvation, being raised from the dead, to immortality and incorruption, to, to be with a, a new body and a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sin. And these things are, but these things flow out of the relationship into which we are brought in and the relationship that exists as 
father and son by their very nature father and son cannot be otherwise because that is who and what they are and even though we aren't aren't deified in such a way but we are brought in and adopted and in christ then made a part of these things when we are raised from the dead our physical being doesn't find its its you know foundation formed out of the dust of the ground but as the church the bride of christ from christ's very side itself so why can't we fall again why would we be incorruptible because we're not we're not formed out of the dust of the ground right we are um in a sense bodies of the spirit that doesn't mean that we're spirits right but bodies formed of the spirit the holy spirit is is reforming them like in ezekiel but but finding our foundation in christ and the only way that we could fall is if christ himself was the fall which cannot happen the only way we could lose our relationship as sons and heirs is if christ was to lose his position as son and heir which cannot happen and so this is all caught up in what he says here when he says, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, this is what he gives to us. And then interestingly enough, so he closed that up. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Isn't that wonderful? We've been talking about father and son. And you're like, well, I don't even know what the Holy Spirit's needed for. And Jesus says it right here, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches for the, the spirit directs us back to Christ and the truth of Christ's word and gives us faith to bring us into this relationship. Jesus does things for us. The Holy Spirit does things to us. And so the Holy Spirit is bringing our hearts, changing us spiritually so that we are bound to Christ and so that we may overcome and in the resurrection of the dead, then be remade so that we in both spirit and, and body bound up in Christ where we cannot be torn away or we will sit and overcome down on the throne with Christ and his Father, sharing in their relationship unto life everlasting. Pastor Sean Linnell is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this letter to the church in Laodicea, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. You can also get in touch with us using the open mic feature on the KFUO app. Either way, it's a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>